I understand, actually. My husband is Samoan, uh, so talofa. Kia ora, welcome to Dirty Dirty Talk Podcast. What do we have on the show today, Mike? Hello, Bex. Today we have uh, Mike Ferris. He's a cool guy. So Mike is a director for Citizens Commission for Human Rights. He's a Scientologist. He's a former spokesperson for Scientology New Zealand. And he was actually on my show, my old podcast, a few years back. And I had him up and I was like, hey, what's going on? You know, what are you up to? And, and I sort of invited him on the show. So it'd be really cool to get a Scientologist perspective on a lot of COVID stuff. And also hear what he's been doing with regards to um, the organization that he's involved in. But actually, we don't really go into a lot of detail about um, Scientology itself. I do have two old pods, which you can go and check out. So if you Google Chewing the Fat with Mike, it's on Spotify and and Google Podcasts and everywhere you won't find it. But if you go and have a look there, um, you can find out sort of what Scientology is, Scientology context of New Zealand. It's kind of like a big deep dive. But today for this podcast sort of purposes, um, we're going to stick to uh, CCHR and Scientology with regards to COVID. Um, yeah. Nice. So if you want to hear about Scientology 101, we can check out Chewing the Fat with Mike. Yeah. All right. Let's head to some headlines because I hear that the Satanists in Texas have been up to some good or no good? Well, that depends on your situation and how you see it. Basically, what they've been up to... So the Satanic Temple is a, is a is like a temple, kind of as, as the name suggests. They're based up in, like, I don't know, the east, the northeast of America or whatever. But you guys might have... You probably would have heard about this Texas stuff about abortions being banned. Um, and essentially what these guys have done is they're arguing that they... Because they are a non-theistic religious organization... Um, their members should have access to abortion bills. Sorry, pills. Does that make sense? Kind of. Not really. So they're wanting to help women have access to abortion pills because it's currently illegal to get an abortion. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So right. it's, it's become it's become illegal. And these people from the from Satanic Temple are saying if, if our members want access to it, they should be allowed to have it. And their argument is that um, they sort of like draw parallels with um, the native people of north america and what they sort of say is peyote the sort of the cactus the hallucinogen um they can use that in in certain rituals even though it's illegal and (laughs) the satanic temple is basically saying that um in abortion rituals we should be able to use they should be able to use um abortion pills it's kind of strange eh? Mm. so i don't know we'll see how that one works out that's an interesting one i don't know how abortion pills work Apparently, you just take one and then they. But they're illegal in 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 the US. Well, I'm, I I assume so because that's what, how they're arguing. They're saying, "Oh, look, we, our members need to have access to it." Interesting. So I guess maybe like they force a miscarriage or something like that. They must do because they can't have access to a to a uh, hospital to be able to get a, a safe abortion. So this is an alternative. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's 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 a way, and everyone's kind of like, mm, "You guys are just crazy." people and no one takes them seriously but i mean it's a way of like trying to get you know people access to fucking abortions yeah i mean i'm not sure if i agree with the method but absolutely the intent behind it Mm. trying to help women get access to abortion i think is um i mean it's a no-brainer really all right well that's the u.s off to china for us now mike (laughs) so i don't know if you guys have heard but a former senior inspector and top watchdog at china's top anti-corruption agency (laughs) 
has himself been charged with accepting 71 million US dollars in bribes. So it's been reported that Dong was involved in corruption and bribery in almost every position he's held over the last two decades of his political career. He faced trial last week with the court stating that he's confessed to his crimes and expressed repentance. I guess this watchdog is in the doghouse now, Mike. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice lad. So basically what this guy, this guy was, he was anti-corruption dude and yep. he just took a yep. ton of bribes. Himself. $71 yep. million. Did they, did they, has, have they talked about what he might be liable for in terms of a sentence? Like what, what, what that might be? It, it's a live sentence. I'm not sure what that looks like in China. Yeah. But it will be a pretty hefty sentence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Do they, do they do, um, yeah, I don't know. That'll be dodgy for this guy. Yeah, I mean, he's not the first one in, chi- in China's government to be charged with corruption, but it is pretty funny considering he was the top watchdog in the anti-corruption agency. We call that irony. <laughs> we do. So moving on, um, the Young Farmer of the Year kicks off. Bex, I know you've been sort of keeping an eye on this one. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> so, ne- <laughs> so next month. The Young Farmer of the Year competition kicks off around the country. Young, that's New Zealand, I'm sorry for like our overseas listeners. Uh, young people compete in several modules to take the honour of the most awesome young farmer. Um, <laughs> i got a couple of quotes here. Quote, I definitely walked away having learned a thing or two, including how to put the lid of a beehive properly on the top, not the bottom. Jake Jarman, a former competitor, laughed when he spoke about last year's competition. Um, yeah. It's pretty cool. Uh, here's another little quote um, from the New Zealand Young Farmers Board Chairman Kent Weir. He said, quote, get all of your mates involved, have a laugh, and find out who actually brings what to the table, especially seeing as districts are all about practical challenges. Bex, came to give it a crack? Look, I don't think I can be trusted around beehives, honestly. <laughs> I, I tried to check out what was actually in the competition. They didn't actually say anything. They're like, oh, yeah, practical stuff. There's like a written test or something. I don't know. It's just people like it. And it, apparently it's been around since like 19, the 1960s. So it's Wow. A, yeah, it's an old thing. Where is it held? So uh, all around like the district. So for example, there'd be like an Auckland thing and then there'd be, I don't know, like a Taranaki one. Mm. So all the different regions, they all sort of like face off and then the winner of those regions all sort of meet up into an international one. But it actually lasts for like a year. It's, I don't know. I don't even know why this is a headline. I don't know why I put this in here, to be honest, but <laughs> hardly interesting, I guess. That's okay. Look, um, I want to use this opportunity now to bitch about something that I bitch about on a daily basis. So I thought I'd share it with you all. Yeah. House prices in Auckland. Actually, house prices in this whole country. Can you afford your own home? Because apparently 60% of property owners could not afford to buy their home at its current value. And that's according to some new research from Consumer New Zealand. That's crazy, don't you think? That 60% of people who own a home, if it was on the market now, they wouldn't be able to buy it. Yeah, so we were sort of talking about this before. And if you kind of run the numbers, it essentially means that like only a small fraction of the people who in New Zealand can actually afford to buy a house based on current prices, like a very small amount. And it's, it's incredibly depressing. Yeah, that's the one. I was actually reading an article a couple of days ago that said that only 15% of single people under the age of 34 own a house right now. And that's going to rapidly decrease. I mean, house prices increased by 27% in just the last year alone. That's crazy. And it's now, so this is, like a 
all-time low home ownership. It's the lowest it's been in 70 years. And the average house price is over 12 times the average salary. 12 times. So if you think about the wage that you earn, times that by 12 is how much it costs yeah, that to was, buy a house. I mean, for dramatic pause, it's insane. Like, I, I don't... It's, it's, I, don't, I get angry about it, to be really honest. Like, I, I, I think some, something's got to change. Like, and there's a new lockdown, obviously, and everyone's kind of going, oh, what's going to happen? Um, and I also read as well that, like, the housing stock that's available for sale is, like, plummeted as well. Mm-hmm. So you now have, like, even less stock available to people who want to buy. And it's like, whoa, what happens when demand goes up and, and supply goes down, prices go up? So I don't know how this is going to resolve itself but it's an absolute fiasco and i don't understand why the government is basically doing fucking nothing about it i'm angry about this shit i get really pissed off yeah for sure like i don't know about you but i personally feel like i've just given up on the idea of ever being able to own a home in auckland it just feels impossible to me so a lot of people are in the situation where they can't go up so they bought a house or whatever and let's say, for example, they want to move into another place. They can't now. A friend of mine um, was forced to sell his half of a house and is like, well, I can't buy anything anymore. Like, I'm stuffed. Like, I'm out, I'm out of the market because it's the next house he buys, he just can't afford it. So, I don't know. Wow, it's all a bit depressing. <laughs> <laughs> Mike wants to start a revolution. Yeah, I want to burn some stuff, man. Well, you know, in all seriousness, like maybe that's what we need to do, not go around burning shit, Mike. Mm. But I mean, why aren't we protesting this? Yeah. No, actually. Right? So. Well, I mean, this is the thing is that the the numbers come out like every day. There's another depressing article on the figures about how this is just a complete fiasco. And I like, I know we're in a lockdown and everything and people seem to be caring about COVID. But actually, like housing is really fucking important. It's extremely, and people were just like, I don't like, so what is it? What are the, how many people own property? Like 60% of people? About 60%. Right. Okay. So what are the, they're all going, cool, 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 cool. I, now my house is worth whatever. But like, what about like other people? What, I mean, it's not good for anybody that these houses, you know, average house price in Auckland is one, near $1.3 million. It's just bananas. I, so yeah, something needs to happen and, and questions need to be asked of the government. Like it's insane. They need to be doing something. What do you reckon? Yeah. Definitely. I don't know. It's all a bit depressing if you ask me. But, hey, we have Mike Ferris on the show today. We do. So, hopefully he can cheer us up for a little bit. Yeah. Then we can go back to bitching about the housing crisis later on. Yeah. What do you think? (laughs) Sounds good. Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. So, welcome, Mike. Uh, Mike is the director for Citizens Commission for Human Rights, or CCHR, um, a Scientology-funded organization whose uh, stated mission is to, quote, eradicate abuses committed under the guise of mental health and enact patient and consumer protections. Um, Mike is also a Scientologist, a former spokesperson for Scientology uh, in New Zealand, a musician and an artist who joins us now. Hey, Mike. Hello. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming Hi. on the pod. This is our first time meeting, so welcome. Yes, thanks. So, Mike, what so CCHR or Citizens Commission for Human Rights has been involved with helping um, victims of older psychiatric hospitals. Tell us about what CCHR actually does. Well, it, it's a, um, a watchdog group that 
looks at mental health and psychiatric abuse and helps people to <clears throat> file complaints and acts as advocates and essentially puts um, some external pressure and ethics in on a profession that won't police itself, essentially. What are some of those like fundamentals that sort of drive, like f fundamental principles that drive CCHR? Well, <clears throat> CCHR um, works with um, the concept that the person in mental health care should have rights. And many years ago, they wrote a Declaration of Human Rights for um, mental health. And the first principle of that is that there should be no compulsory treatment in mental health or psychiatry. Mm. So everybody should have the right to choose and to say um, what kind of treatment they want. And they should have the right to refuse treatment whenever they say. So that's, that's the very, very first principle. And um, we have a mental health system. It's in New Zealand, but it's also around the predominantly the Western world where if a person is incarcerated in a mental institution, a unit, a hospital, they can be treated against their will and that usually has quite detrimental effects on the person. That's really interesting. And, and later on, I'm really keen to hear your thoughts, Mike, on some alternative ways that we can work alongside people that are experiencing mental health challenges. But first sure. I was wondering, what is the link between CCHR and Scientology? Well, uh, the Citizens Commission on Human Rights was established in 1969 by the Church of Scientology and by Professor Thomas Sars. He's a professor of psychiatry. And together they established this group with the view in mind that um, something should be done about psychiatric uh, abuse of human rights. And Thomas Sars himself is a Hungarian um, person and he joined forces with the Scientologists to set up the group around a case that happened back in, only in the late 60s where a Hungarian person was being treated uh, in a psychiatric institution and uh, the, one of the reasons was that this person was being treated was that he couldn't speak English, he was, spoke Hungarian. There's actually nothing wrong with the guy. And interestingly enough, um, in the recent Royal Commission of Inquiry into Abuse and Care here in New Zealand, in these um, Pacific Island hearings just recently, some people were being treated, and also in Lake Alice, because they had, very, uh, had a lack of command of English. And they were seen as being mentally unwell. And that's so you guys advocate on behalf of people according to your principles. I have put it like so you're basically essentially saying you as an organization don't sorry advocate for people to not be forced to take psychiatric help or something like that. And then that's how you advocate for these people. Well, essentially, we have a law that says that they that a person can be treated against their will. Uh, we would say that, that law is against human rights. And it's not just us saying it, although we've been saying it for a very long time. 
and now you'll find that the uh, UN Committee on Disabilities and also the World Health Organization recently have come out with a declaration saying that there should be no compulsory treatment in mental health. And um, so you wouldn't be able to hold and detain a person and treat them against their will. It should also it should always be done with consent. Mm. Right. What currently, Mike, under the Mental Health Act, what is the criteria for people to be uh, restrained against their own will? Which usually they say it's because they're a person's a danger to themselves or a danger to others. And under that criteria, they should be treated um, even if they don't want to be. And they've only recently, I think it's this year, they've put forward an amendment for the Mental Health Act to eliminate or to uh, to remove the word to be treated indefinitely, um, which is a good thing. I mean, it's a start uh, because essentially a person once in the system could be indefinitely um, treated under that regime. <clears throat> so it's true people can become mentally unwell. They can have psychotic episodes. They can have um, terrible you know, experiences with mental unwellness. And, but that's not necessarily a lasting event. It could be over in a matter of weeks and then the person starts to um, come right. Now, at that point, um, the person should absolutely have choices in terms of uh, what treatment they want, what treatment they should have. And, um, but using the Mental Health Act, they can be held and detained and treated against their will, even though they might have recovered from that psychotic episode. So I hate to hammer the point home, but I'm just wondering about the link between, or keep sort of hammering on about this, but like I'm wondering about the link between CCHR and, and Scientology and, and how that affects the organisation. Like I just think, you know, a lot of people are critical of Scientology. Now, whether or not that has anything to do with CCHR and the link between the two of them, I'm, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. I mean, you sent through a really interesting article um, on stuff quite recently about the work that you've been doing for Lake Ellis. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, but um, I'm just wondering if you've had any run-ins or any issues or, or, or how that whole sort of thing works. Okay. Essentially... Uh... Our work with the Citizens Commission on Human Rights mm. uh, has been praised both here and overseas because we're one of the few groups uh, that have taken a stance and been actually um, a trendsetter in terms of advocating for patient rights. Now, that move, there's a whole anti-psychiatry movement which started up in the 1960s, but now there's a whole survivor movement that have really been uh, pressuring uh, the likes of the United Nations and the World Health Organization in terms of what good mental health care would be. Um, and so this the, the psychiatric survivor movement has really sort of kind of taken over even from what we've been doing because they are the voices of the survivors. So in terms of criticism of Scientology, uh, yeah, we get criticised. You know, there's, <laughs> uh, when, when um, CCHR has 
come up with certain things that are anti-psychiatry or anti the um, ECT or um, indiscriminate drugging. It gets thrown back. Oh, that's just the Scientologists, right? Right. And um, and there are a bunch of you know people that are involved in this this religion, this cult, and therefore why should we listen to them? Which is, uh, it's an invalid way of attacking an issue, of course. And the the real truth of that is is that the psychiatric survivors, people who go through this treatment, a lot of them actually really hate it. They hate having to be. <laughs> They don't hate, blame them. <laughs> yeah, they hate having to be medicated. Um, here in New Zealand, I've just dealt with a couple of recent cases where you have the police coming around and, and taking a person who maybe was non-compliant with their medication, being picked up from their home and taken back to a mental health unit. And, you know, if you've got a, as much as you know, four or six police and mental health workers at your door saying, come with us. That's pretty heavy-handed. Yeah, some really um, complex things going on there. And and, and we know um, that New Zealand's had a really turbulent past with psychiatric hospitals. What is your opinion, Mike, now on New Zealand's mental health facilities, and what would you personally do to improve them? Yeah, well, that's a $64 question, isn't it? My favourite kind of question. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so essentially, yes, New Zealand has had a, a turbulent past with uh, psychiatric uh, hospitals and care. Uh, a number of exposés that we've been involved in, from deep sleep uh, treatment in the 1970s, uh, various other issues that have, have occurred, a couple of deaths that we were involved in the investigations of. And... What what, hap- what often happens is that there's some kind of inquiry into what's occurred. But essentially, not a lot changes, not a lot happens as a result of those inquiries. And yet some of the recommendations of previous inquiries have been quite good. So the psychiatric monopoly is actually really strong. I think it's much stronger than people realise, just what power that group of people that group of professionals have and their political influence and so they're not going to give up easily on ideas of um, holistic mental health uh, or give way to those ideas where perhaps alternative treatments could be incorporated they always want to maintain the right to drug a person to maintain them on um, well, they really only have, they have a very limited toolkit, psychiatrists. They have drugs and they have electric shocks. And when you tell a psychiatrist that, they actually get quite annoyed. But it's true. They don't counsel. Psychologists tend to do a bit of counseling, but the psychiatrist does not. They tend to have this biological idea that we are just a brain with a body and somehow there's some kind of imbalance going on, though, though it's never been proved. And um, and that here's these here's these drugs which are drugs that are going to somehow correct an imbalance that doesn't exist. And um, so, how do you improve it? Well, 
remove the monopoly of psychiatry. And I think if you did that, they would have to um, up their game in terms of uh, treating people with respect, with human rights, with consent. Absolutely. So really, you're advocating for a more holistic way of working alongside people who are going through mental health or distress in their life. Yes, that's correct. If, and so, if an, me, so mental health care, mental health units, if they had those kind of uh, those broader facilities, I think you'd have a, a much more willing engagement um, with people uh, who who actually need who do require that kind of help. Hmm. If an individual consented to having medication alongside talking therapy, such as counselling, would you support that that decision sure. or that view? Yeah, I mean, people are entitled to make those choices, for sure. You know, it's not for us to say that that's a wrong choice. And so what's, you mentioned like Alice before, what's your involvement with it? Can you just tell us about what happened with that and and, um, and where you guys got involved? Well, <clears throat> Lake Alice has now become a, a notorious uh, event in our history. Essentially, in 1976, uh, CCHR was established in New Zealand, and one of the first things that they did was to uh, to conduct tours of some psychiatric hospitals. And so a small group of members of CCHR requested to go into Lake Alice in January of 1976, and they were allowed in. Where is and Lake Alice, through... by the way? That's just outside uh, Whanganui in a town called Martin. Yeah. So they were allowed into this facility and they toured this child and adolescent unit. And while going through this unit where these kids were held, they were being pulled aside and these children were talking about getting shocks, electric shocks, as punishment and also being given drugs as punishment. And so within... A few days, CCHR published their, uh, this information, which opened up uh, the first real sort of complaints into uh, Lake Ellis. What happened was then a few months later, or later on in that year, another group got involved. And they were the Auckland Committee Against um, Racism and Discrimination Accord. <clears throat> And um, they heard of a Nguyen boy who had been treated at Lake Alice and they advocated uh, with the child's family and there was an inquiry called the inquiry of the Nguyen boy, or the case of the Nguyen boy. And that certainly made headlines in media. There was no finding against the psychiatrist Dr. Selwyn Leakes or to do with any of his practice but it was very clear that from the inquiry inquiry results that uh, the problem wasn't with the, the shocking and drugging of this child that the problem was that CCHR and this group called Accord were making, were stirring up trouble. That's, that was essentially what the magistrate 
Um, because you guys are sort of poking around and having a look or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. So CCHR never stopped looking at um, Lake Alice. Uh, what we did was that one of the uh, key researchers for um, CCHR, who's still around today, he was living down in Whanganui, and he was he, he had met a former uh, uh, young guy who'd come out of Lake Alice and talked to him, and then he got to talk to others who coming out coming out of Lake Alice, and he started documenting and their cases and getting them to sign um, sworn testimonies about what happened in that facility. And as a result, um, CCHR started building up this documentation about what was going on in Lake Alice. Uh, and then and that continued through the 80s into the 90s. And then by the year... We'd, we'd laid a couple of complaints in the 90s, and, and then in um, by 2000, or the late 90s, we were dealing with some more complaints, and there was a class action suit of 80 or so people who are now um, filing a claim against the government for what happened to them at Lake Ellis. What What kind of things happen there? Like, I mean, you said sort of electroshock for... For kids and and other things, and what was what specifically did they put in the class <clears throat> class action uh, lawsuit uh, against the government? Yeah. <clears throat> what what we were documenting and what was coming out was that these children were being subjected to electric shocks, not um, in the form of uh, ECT, which is shocks administered to the head. But it was in an unmodified form, so they weren't given muscle relaxants or anaesthetic. They were wide awake while these shocks were occurring. The, the psychiatrist, Dr. Leakes, was applying the electrodes to the head. But in, in, but he was also, um, in one case that we heard of, he, was, he moved the electrodes down the, down the child's face and around the jaw and was shocking around his jawline. And... Um, this was not uncommon. He was also shocking using the electric shock machine for shocking the shoulders, the arms, the legs, and even the genitals of these children. And um, so this was, I mean, this is just torture. What, how did you guys get on with your class action, your, your lawsuit? Did you win it? Well, it wasn't our, it wasn't our lawsuit. It was, Sorry, yeah, not it was, you were involved with it. Well, yeah, we gave some data to the lawyer who was running it. Yeah. And they they accepted a settlement of $6.5 million uh, to cover 95 claimants. And the lawyer took his cut, and the claimants ended up getting paid anything from, on an average, around about $65,000 each. Some got more, some got a bit less, depending on the extent of abuse that they suffered. Um, and then from that first round of 95 claimants, the government said, well, if anybody else you suffered, you know, at the hands of Dr. Leakes at Lake Ellis can also come forward. And about another hundred people came forward and they were paid out, um, commensurate amounts. Uh, there's a, it's a, it's a long story. It's quite involved and quite detailed, but 
essentially from those first payouts and, and the government apology and the Galen report, we took some of those cases and filed them with the police uh, as um, abuse, you know, physical punishment, torture, whatever. The police ran a case from 2003 and took them seven years and they said there is no, nothing to be answered for in terms of, of criminal offending. And that was just wrong because we had evidence. We could see it. It was pretty clear. So we then filed um, reports to the United Nations Committee Against Torture. That was um, CCHR. And <clears throat> so they started filing to the Committee Against Torture. It was being brought up um, by the Committee Against Torture in the um, periodic reviews with, the, with New Zealand. New Zealand's answer was that we'd done everything that we needed to do and uh, we don't really need to, need to do much else. So by 2015, the former uh, person who, who was in charge of CCHR, Steve Green, he and one of the survivors, the key survivors, his name's Paul Zenfeld, they flew to Geneva and met with the Committee Against Torture during New Zealand's periodic review and it was brought up once again. And the Committee Against Torture was saying that, that the country really has to open up a new police investigation. They have to treat this as torture and investigate it properly. But the government re would not do it. So by the time I took over with CCHR, we had filed and we had written up a formal complaint, which which is slightly different to the uh, reporting to the Committee Against Torture. We would filed a formal complaint, and then uh, that was uh, upheld by the end of 2019. So essentially we won a case uh, with the Committee Against Torture at the United Nations against the New Zealand government. And now they've opened up a new police investigation, which is still ongoing. And they've had a hearing at the Royal Commission of Inquiry in June, which is partly where the article that you read came from. And um, so, yeah, so, the, so New Zealand was basically guilty in the UN's eyes of not investigating a case of torture when it absolutely uh, had, had the, under the convention, they should have done that. Right. And, I mean, from what you've described, I don't think anyone can disagree that, that these people face serious torture. It's horrific, the stories that you've told us. I mean, Mike, these are obviously very extreme, extreme examples of abuse by people in power and by mental health clinicians, not that you'd probably want to call them that because they certainly weren't um, helping people going through challenging mental health issues at the time. But something that I'm really curious about is your opinion on what's going on right now. Um, <laughs> luckily, we don't have that same extent of abuse of people in the mental health system, but I know that you still have some concerns with how we do treat people. And I'm a social worker and I work in a prison and I work alongside many 
mental health clinicians, including mental health nurses and psychologists. We don't have any psychiatrists there, but I do work with quite a few psychologists. How do you think we could best treat people like that? For example, people who are suffering from mental health issues that could be at risk of harm to themselves or others. Before you answer that really quickly, Mike, can somebody, do you want to define the terms for me? So a psychologist, psychiatrist, a mental health clinician, like these are all kind of, for the dum-dums out there like me, do you want to define those really quickly? Yeah, sure. So Mike touched on earlier the role of a psychiatrist, which is largely around administering medication, whereas a psychologist is someone who provides usually talking therapy treatment, so counselling um, in a layman's term. A mental health clinician can be a mental health nurse who can do a little bit of counselling as well as making sure that the client is following through with the plan set by the psychiatrist or the psychologist. Yeah, cool. Sorry for everybody out there, just uh, clarify that. Yeah, so I guess my question was around how you think we could treat people who do have mental health challenges that are impacting on them. Uh, That could be things like schizophrenia, as an example, and that has an impact on their life, but it could also put them at risk of harm to others. What do you think is the best way to work with these people? Uh, Okay, well... Just, just so as you um, to get, put a bit of clarification here, <clears throat> as I said earlier, if you remove the monopoly of psychiatry from the mental health system and it opened the opened it up to um, other therapies, then you would have a, a broader base of choice and treatment. Number one. And in your present situation, you, you, although you don't have psychiatrists there, the hidden hand of psychiatry is that a lot of prisoners are given psychiatric drugs. And um, that can only be by a, a practitioner of a doctor or a psychiatrist. Um, while I don't hold the same strong opinions with you around using medication, I do completely agree that we need to be treating people in a holistic way um, mm. and in a way that that's going to meet their needs. Um, but but I do want to shift the, the conversation a little bit and, and get current with what's happening in the world and in New Zealand. And of course, at the moment, that's COVID-19. I was interested yes. what your thoughts are on the current response to COVID-19 from a Scientology perspective and your views around vaccination. Okay, well, I, um, I mean, it's a real thing. COVID nineteen is not a is not some kind of made up virus, you know that that's um, <laughs> replacing the common cold. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I don't. I'm not against the response of our government in terms of its uh, measures that it's taking. I think in New Zealand we're somewhat fortunate to have had some months of relative. <clears throat> COVID-free freedom in our society. And hopefully we head back in that direction once again. Um, and and also with the vaccine, that's got to be a choice. It should only ever be a choice, same as any, any kind of um, medical treatment or intervention. Yeah, I mean, I guess the like the vaccination thing is an interesting question. I know it's not quite the same as what you're talking about in terms of mental health, but 
some of the things um, that I read around not using certain drugs or whatever when it comes to psychiatry, um, does that same thing apply to vaccinations generally or is it like quite separate thing, if that makes any sense? Very separate. Right. From a Scientology point of view. From a Scientology, yeah, yeah, from a Scientology point of view. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, there'll be Scientologists that will that will have the vaccine and I know of some and some that won't. I mean, it's just entirely a choice thing. Right, and there's no sort of like stance from the church about this stuff they're just like yeah i mean it's just do it you do what you got to do basically yeah yeah absolutely yeah. okay no, there, just, there's like, no there's nothing uh-huh. nothing of that sort in terms of um trying to sort of dictate uh those health issues no no way mm. and i'm wondering like what your so i, I, I Got, so cast my mind back to the conversation we had all those years ago about sort of Scientology generally. Um, and what did you say? What was it like? The practice of being well, I forget what it was. It was something like that. Um, so my mind sort of, yeah, sort of escapes me. But um, but when it comes to COVID and how it's really kind of adversely affecting a lot of people mentally, like is there a Scientologist sort of perspective on on tips or advice that you would give people? It's very practical in terms of what the government is trying to do in terms of lockdowns. I think that that is a good idea. But the problem with it is, is that it's an imposed reduction of space and your ability to move. That, for some people, for a lot of people, uh, can be mentally troubling, uh, being stuck in their house stuck um, inside their house or just in that locality and not being able to, not having that freedom of movement. That's where you're going to find some of the troubles start because of that reduction of space, right? And that reduction of so-called freedom or freedom of movement. So one of the things that you can do is uh, realize that the worst thing that could happen is uh, to take away your creativity. So somehow you've got to be creative in this environment and maybe find new ways of being creative and new ways of um, occupying yourself and engaging and um, being productive, whether it's, uh, re, you know, working in your garden or working on your house or some kind of activity that you can do. Certainly use the the tools of communication like we're doing now with Zoom. And because communication is another really important factor. And, and staying in touch with people and staying in touch with people that you know might be having a hard time with this lockdown. That's also important. So thinking of others and um, their care as well. So there are, there are a few, quite a few things that can be done. It could be an opportunity for some people to, you know, look at an online course in, in some kind of endeavor activity, whether it's a photography course or a, a this or a that, that they could engage in and, um, and do something that they've been meaning to do for some time. There's a, there's a lot of opportunities out there if one uh, takes those opportunities and thinks, well, yeah, I could do this or I could do that. Nice. I think that's some really great advice and strategies for some people. 
I really like what you're saying about getting creative and starting projects and and new hobbies and and also connecting with others. Yeah, and finishing things. Take those old things. <laughs> yeah, complete some stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like start a podcast. No jokes. <laughs> Yeah, you started something, well, yeah. maybe now you can finish it, or maybe you, you started doing something to some part of your house, well, now you can finish that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, sure. I think I think what the government should be aware of is that when they go into a, this lockdown thing, they should, at least for another two or three days, keep the um, hardware shops available for access. Nah. So people can, yeah. <laughs> can grab the... Paint their room or whatever, yeah. Yeah, well, I decided to refurbish a couple of rooms, and, I, and it's really quite hard to find paint at level four. Yeah, <laughs> true. <laughs> especially the, the, the colour you want. Um, I did manage to find some through Trade Me, actually, which was great. Oh, that's good. How is the membership in New Zealand at the moment, and, and what do you think attracts people to join the Church of Scientology? Well, the membership isn't, I mean, it isn't huge, and I'm not even sure what the current numbers are having not been there for a few years but the uh there are obviously new people coming in to Scientology a lot of people uh, are finding out about it through the Scientology TV channel mm. which is a now now a thing where you can tune into Scientology TV and watch Scientology TV programs and they, and they and there's a whole range of stuff that you can watch on Scientology TV. You can even watch um, some of the CCHR documentaries, the work Scientology is doing with drug rehabilitation, human rights, and what Scientology is. It explains the philosophy and uh, the processes and even the courses, things like that. How's the Grafton building going, Mike? The new one? Well, relatively it, new. It's been a while. Yeah. yeah. Did you get Did you get along there? No, I didn't. In the end, I need to get down there and have a look. I've been in, in yeah. overseas for a few years, so. But, yeah, I'd love to take you through it. Yeah, sometime. Be cool. How's it going yeah. down there? It's all finished. It's great. Yeah, it's all done. That was a that was a project. Getting that thing, um, essentially beautifully refurbished. Where is it again? What, which which part? So in in Auckland, for for the listeners, it's it's the head of Scientology in New Zealand, and it's this big old building that Scientology's renovated. Whereabouts is it? It's in Grafton. It's on Grafton Road. Grafton Road. Yeah. It's kind of hard to yeah. miss, actually. Do you know? Have you seen it? I have. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. It's a, it's a wonderful building. It was originally a, a Methodist college. That's what mm. it was built for. And it had various other uses, including an arts centre, um, the um, Wycliffe Arts School before we took it over. Oh, that's right, it was art school, yeah. 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 And it so, really did need um, that refurbishment and that renovation, and it actually won an award for that for that renovation. Just going to change tack a little bit before we head off. Um, Mike, how's the music going and how's your art going? Good. I'm, I've been mainly focused on the music in the last year or so. Yeah. Uh, and um, been making... Some recordings. I'm working with a, a friend of mine who does percussion, and I do electronics, synthesizers, and so on. Where do we find your music? Well, on on my website, it's got links to the music. So yeah, it's michael michaelferris.com, and that's with two s's at the end, right? Two s's on ferris.com, yep. and the music is under uh, two different projects, or three actually, 
um, there's Shima, which is my solo stuff, and then Fair Up Harsh is with uh, my friend Jeff. And it's all on there. That's it. It's all on there. So if anybody wants to go and check it out, they can check out michaelferris.com with two S's and check out the Shima stuff in the Fera something. Fera Harsh, yeah. Yeah, cool. And also, like, if people wanted to check out some stuff, um, some information on CC um, HR or Scientology, I mean, just, they've got to Google it. Is there anywhere you point them to in particular? Well, the website cchr.org, which is the big international CCHR site, it has videos and a lot of information on that site. Um, you could go for on the Lake Ellis uh, information. You could Google Lake Ellis and find a whole lot of news stories. But also there are um, abuse in care uh, inquiry has a whole all the hearing videos um, the whole testimony is on that is on their website which is really interesting it is it is hard it's a hard hard watch actually some mm. of that stuff yeah, yeah. I mean it's, um, everyone sort of heard about that sort of stuff and, and the work that you guys are doing is pretty amazing um, no, I just thank you so much for coming on the show, Mike. It's been it's been really interesting talking to you. Some really um, complex and hard issues that we've touched on today. Sure, yeah, absolutely. And you could, you could obviously go a lot longer because there's a lot a lot of depth to some of that stuff. Eh? Mm. There is, yeah. Well, we'll have to get you back on the podcast later on. I mean, this is only a short podcast. I mean, it's only 40, 40 50 minutes, so mm. I have to come on to and maybe a deeper dive on some of that. Um, that Lake Ellis stuff in particular, which is pretty pretty horrendous, yeah, um, and be good to sort of hear about it more. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Any final words that you want to leave us with, Mike, before we head off? Oh, look, I appreciate the opportunity once again, Mike and, and Bex. It's fantastic. Thank you so much, Mike. You're welcome. Cheers. Cool, Mike. That was really interesting having him on. Yeah, he's a cool guy. He's a really cool guy. Yeah, yeah. It was a little bit different to what I expected. I had it. What did you expect? Well, I've never really sat down and talked with someone who's, you know, been a massive part of the Scientology church before. Um, I didn't know too much about the CCHR. Um, and I found him overall to be quite, like, balanced in some of his views and, and really passionate, particularly about the work around Lake Alice and, and advocating for victims of that horrific abuse and torture. What did you think about all that? Yeah, I thought... My sort of reaction is like I really respect what those guys are up to in terms of advocating for um, victims' rights, and they are you know survivors who have gone through some really traumatic and awful stuff. And I really I think you know what CCHR are doing is is actually really positive, is really cool. Where I sort of go hmm is I don't know about the science of of what he said. Um, and what they advocate for, I, I can say like, look, if somebody is has been you know tortured by the state, they should be compensated and compensated well, and they should be looked after, and there should be so, should be some sense of justice. Now, going on to like advocating for a style of medicine or something is something I can't talk about, and maybe I don't know. What do you think? What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, firstly, like I want to put it out there that what what people have experienced in the past is absolutely horrific and um, have absolutely every right to be standing up against that. And I think it's awesome what they're doing and advocating for those people. Um, I guess similar to you, like where I kind of depart a little bit is around what's going on currently in the mental health system. I mean, I, I'm not a psychiatrist myself. I only have my own kind of observations of working with alongside other mental health clinicians. 
Um, I, I do think personally that there is a place for medication for people, but I totally support what Mike's saying that it needs to be done in a holistic way. So we shouldn't be giving people drugs without giving people counselling and getting to understand some of the factors that contribute towards their mental illness. Um, it doesn't just exist in a, in a vacuum and the drug isn't going to fix all of that. So I totally you know, agree with what he's saying there. I just perhaps don't hold the same kind of strength of views around getting rid of uh, drugs altogether. What? So Quirbus is a psychologist. He is. Uh, what do you think he'd say about what Mike's sort of advocating for and talking about? Look, I think Quirbus being a psychologist, he has a lot of emphasis on counselling and psychotherapy and the importance that has to play. But because he works in a prison with myself, we also see that having uh, access to medication for some of the people in prison is actually really important for their own stability and for the safety of others around them. Mm. So I don't think Quirbus would be um, black and white in um, saying that we shouldn't be prescribing medication. I think he would also see the benefit in that, as, as I do, to be honest. Yeah, I don't know anything about nothing. And I trust people to make a better decision. Oh, I'm a dumb dumb mate. Hey. Yeah, look, look, it's really complex. And, and he made some really good points. You know, for example, um, the focus that psychiatry has had on labeling people and um, boxing people in. But I must say that things are changing and that psychiatry isn't all about that anymore. There are psychiatrists who also put a lot of emphasis on counseling themselves and get further training in that and who make referrals so that their patients who they prescribe medicine to are also getting the other support that they need. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine things are changing. I mean, well, it's 1976, I think he said, um, where they were using, you know, it was it was torture. I'm not mm. sure you could get away with it now, or to the same degree anyway. It was kind of institutionalized torture, essentially is what it was. So I think, yeah, things are changing a little bit. No, I really wanted to ask you as well, um, what do you think of the Scientology stuff? I and mean, we didn't really touch on it too, too heavily, but did you have any thoughts around that as well? Yeah, that was really interesting. I think, like, he had a really balanced viewpoint when talking about Scientology and, for example, what's going with COVID and, and that they were basically just, you know, following the medical advice, mm. um, which is great. It sounds like he brings it down to personal choice in terms of the vaccination. That's something I'm not too sure on myself. I think, well, I understand, you know, he's really passionate about the choice of the individual Sometimes we need to make choices as a community and as a society to keep each other safe. Yeah, and right. I think the vaccination with regards to COVID is one of those things where we kind of all need to be vaccinated for us all to be safe. So not too sure about that one, Mike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, fair enough. Eh? Um, Bex, any last sort of thoughts on, on, the, on the show this week? Yeah, I guess something that this has highlighted for me is that we can look into the Mental Health Act and gain a better understanding of those conditions in which we are forcing people against their own will to get treatment and at times be medicated. I do think that's a valid point. Um, I'm not quite there yet in saying that there should be no compulsory restraint or treatment for people because I think there might be some times when people are truly at risk to themselves and others. But, but Mike has highlighted some really valid points and I do think it's worth looking into. Yeah, true. Cool. Awesome, Bex. Cool. Good show. Next week. Next week. We well, have a real banger. What, bang what do we have on next week, Mike? Uh, well, we didn't we say this last week? We cut it out, I think. Oh, okay, cool. Well, we're, <laughs> we're not cutting out this week. <laughs> this isn't being cut. Woo! <laughs> yeah. Next week, we've got um, 
and uh, a former incel. So somebody who was part of the the incel movement. Uh, we have a chat with him, which should be a real good one. And if I guess if anyone's listened to this and they've got any questions, um, find them through. Bex, what's that email again? Dirty, dirty talk podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, that's it. But yeah, absolutely. Like, especially if you have any questions for the former incel that you would like us to ask him, send them through, man. It's going to be a real interesting one. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm really excited. Yeah, about I'm it. personally really, really, really excited. Anyway, thank you for listening to Dirty Dirty Talk Podcast. Bye bye. See ya. Bye.